Welcome to the Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of the Just Pod. Today we are joined by Cynthia Nacal, Professional Responsibility Advisor for the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. So Cynthia is joining us today to help us with the conversation. We're going to focus on one case that is of prominence in the news, but also generalize the conversation as this won't be the first or last instance of a juror being called into question after a conviction. So the case that we'll be focusing our discussion around is of Ghislaine Maxwell who was recently convicted of five federal charges of sex trafficking a minor. But her attorneys have formally requested a retrial stating that a juror did not disclose that they are a sexual abuse survivor. So Cynthia is joining us to help us make sense of the implications of the request and what standards would be applied in this instance as the retrial is being considered and what would be the obstacles or what would be the path forward for the defense attorneys in this instance. And then also, as I said, generally, potential problems that can arise in jury trials that can lead to a mistrial. So Cynthia, my first question for you is, how did this concern around this juror get raised after the trial was completed? You know, I'm sure many wonder why wasn't the juror just dismissed up front if they had concerns about potential bias? Emily, thank you for having me here. Let me begin and preface before starting. It, the title that you've given me is for identification purposes only, and any views expressed are my own and not reflective of the office. Well, your question about how did this happen, it happened with media reports. The juror gave an interview indicating that he was a survivor of sexual abuse as a child. And then it turns out there's a second news report where another juror revealed that they too were a survivor of sexual abuse as a child, but also that they shared this experience and used it in the deliberation or at least talked about it in deliberation. Now, how does this happen? Because jurors give media reports. The veil against talking about the case outside of deliberation is lifted once a verdict is rendered and jurors are free to discuss the case with anyone they would like to, whether it be the defense team, prosecution, or even media or their neighbors. As to your second question, why wasn't the jury dismissed? Based on the media reports, it seems that the attorneys, much less the court, may not have been aware that these two jurors had a prior experience of being a sexual abuse survivor. They just didn't know. Now, had they known, they would have gone through the process of questioning and seeing, is this a juror a good fit for this case, despite being a survivor of sexual abuse? And this happens all the time. In a criminal case where there is a theft or a robbery, the question is asked, have you been a victim of robbery? And if so, let's talk about it. And the query becomes, can you still be a fair and impartial juror even though you've had this lived experience? Are you willing to judge the case just squarely on what you hear from the witness testimony, as well as any exhibits, any photographs? Now, it's up to the 
attorneys and the court to decide after the inquiry whether this juror is eligible and suitable and the prosecution and the defense can exercise challenges, a peremptory challenge to excuse a juror. And that is proper as long as it's not based on a protected class. As long as you're not excusing this juror because of race, religion, sexual identification, orientation, it is a proper peremptory challenge. The court can also weigh in and find that this is a challenge for cause, that the juror simply is biased and cannot sit for the case, but you have to have some inquiry and some conversations to determine a record needs to be established. Now, Cynthia, you did say that this happens commonly. I'd like to elaborate on this a little bit more on how common this is for concerns about the jury to arise after a verdict is delivered, or even just, you know, jurors participating in media interviews. This is something that we mostly just see in high profile cases, or is it common to see this on a local level, jurors participating in media interviews, say in, you know, not in a trial that has that national spotlight, but maybe on more of a local level. And then also, what concerns do we commonly see raised about juries that can lead to a mistrial in a general sense? You know, this Ghislaine Maxwell case kind of brings to light the topic of jury misconduct. You don't see it that often. And certainly, you know, it doesn't make a big splash in media reports. But even on a local level, you will see jurors giving interviews or you may just hear of jurors speaking out about cases because it does resonate with jurors, especially when it involves a child an act of violence, whether it's physical or sexual, human trafficking, anything involving a vulnerable community does resonate. And jurors, when you ask jurors what they remember about the case, they can tell you the facts. They may not remember the attorneys or necessarily what department or building they were in, but they can tell you the facts because it's an experience. And Not always are juries coming forward, talking to reporters, going on blogs, social media, but it does arise in terms of the defense wanting to talk to jurors about what the deliberations, was there any misconduct on habeas corpus litigation? That comes up as well, a revisit to the jury and seeing if there's any misconduct for grounds for a habeas corpus petition and a hearing. The grounds for jury misconduct can be as simple as visiting a crime scene, researching on the internet. That has happened quite a few times. You see a word, you see a phrase, a scientific concept. Your trigger is to just go on the internet and do a search, but you can't do that. And also you can't talk to others during the trial. You can't talk to your spouse, your partner about what is going on in the case. Can't talk with other jurors at lunch, what is going on outside deliberations. And you can't talk to the lawyers. You can't talk to the witnesses. Those are the grounds that do come up when there is jury misconduct. Another one, and we see it here, is the failure to disclose. Failure to disclose that you were a survivor or some other fact that could be relevant to the case. Right. And, you know, I'd like for you to share your insights in working with victims. You were speaking to the ability to recall details as victims. 
as we look at this instance of Scotty David specifically as a sexual abuse survivor and in the reports that I've seen, Scotty David seems to indicate that he doesn't recall being asked about that status. Just knowing what you know in your experience in working with victims, what can you speak to in terms of what their ability to recall is or the potential for repressing memories or any insights you can provide to us in there that are important in consideration of this discussion? Oftentimes, a survivor, a victim may not recollect specific details of what happened, such as the color of the carpet, how big the room was, but can give descriptors about what happened to them personally and recollection about what they recall about the person that did it to them, whether it was their physical appearance, an odor, facial hair. But a lot of times, a victim or survivor may not know that they are a victim or survivor. And it takes a triggering event to bring this flood of memories back. And oftentimes, you wonder if a juror may have that occurring, that they did not disclose that they were a victim or survivor of a traumatic event that's relevant to the case proceeding. And they're sitting there looking at photographs or a testimony and the memory is unleashed, it's revealed. There needs to be sensitivity on part of the court as well as the attorneys that even though they answered no in the questionnaire or no in the open proceeding under oath, it's an honest mistake. It's not an intentional withholding. And the same goes for when you're having victims or survivors testify in court on a prosecution or even for the defense. And when that juror has that recall, they must know that there is the ability to make that disclosure and feel they're in a safe enough environment, even though it is a courtroom proceeding, they're legal trapping. It's not about them, but they need to make that disclosure before we get to this point where it's post-verdict and the reveals are being made. I thank you very much for that insight, Cynthia. Certainly very important for this conversation. We appreciate your expertise there. So let's talk about a determination. In this instance, the judge has yet to determine whether there will be a retrial granted. Well, what are the standards that will be applied or that one would assume would be looked at in this instance to make that determination? You know, it's interesting. There's the federal standard. And then when you look at states looking back at a jury verdict and jury misconduct, it varies. The standards vary from state to state. And how you conduct the hearing varies from state to state. But bottom line, what you're looking at is the United States court's opinion on McDonough power versus Greenwood. But even though it's a United States court opinion, it's a plurality opinion which is why we have these variances all over the, uh, the states and even in some federal decisions as to how we look at jury misconduct and how we determine if there should be a retrial or a mistrial granted. Now, the United States Supreme Court made it a two-part test. They stated that, is there actual prejudice? Prejudice to the defendant. And when they define actual prejudice, they're talking about, is there information 
that would have provided basis for a cause challenge had it been known that a juror had bias. So simply the failure to disclose that one is a survivor of sexual abuse as a child, or let's say domestic violence, simply that alone is not sufficient to show the actual prejudice. You need a little bit more. But also that two-part test requires that there be jury misconduct. Now that means in the failure to disclose that there was an intentional withholding of that information. We go back to that saying that, is it an honest mistake? You know, we're talking questionnaires are 50 pages sometimes. We're talking about putting a juror, having him or her go through questioning on questions they haven't anticipated. You file into the room and you're starting to ask questions about your background, your thoughts, your understanding of the legal system. Sometimes you don't recall. I've had jurors come back a day after, after a jury was selected and say, you know, I forgot. And let me correct that answer to my question. And then we gather, we talk about, do we stipulate that the jury should be excused? Or is this something that we can accept and still go forward? Knowing that two-part test, it's a pretty high standard in terms of finding actual prejudice and intentional misconduct. Now layered into the question for a motion for mistrial is also this additional information that we have in the media reports about sharing that common experience and using that in deliberations. Now, it appears that the motions and any arguments, legal arguments and factual arguments are currently under seal in this case. And you know, the one purpose is so that we don't taint the future hearing should there be testimony or declarations filed by any of the jurors. But the question becomes how much common experience is really common? We ask jurors to bring common sense and your experience into the courtroom, into deliberations. But in an analogy, if you have medical records in a case and you have a nurse on a jury, do you want her giving her opinion and analyzing the medical records in terms of the diagnosis? Or if you have a ballistics evidence in a case and you happen to have a firearms expert on a jury, how much of that common experience do you want him drawing in? Because then that becomes extrinsic evidence. And that is what we don't want. Again, we want what is coming from testimony and documentary evidence, physical evidence for the jury to decide, marshalling that with the law. So it becomes an interesting question as to how going forward, whether it's this case or any type of misconduct, mistrial motion, is the degree of common knowledge that a jury can be allowed to use in their deliberations. That's very interesting, thought-provoking to think about especially your examples that you gave of, say, a nurse or a firearms expert. So let's say there is the instance that a jury trial case is granted a retrial. What happens in this instance? What can we expect? It is a do-over. It is start from the beginning again. You start with the same set of charges, the same set of witnesses, you're back where you started. And it also provides room for discussions on a case disposition. Now, not knowing anything that could happen in this particular case, it does open up 
plea negotiations when faced with a retrial, because what we're talking about is we're talking about having all the victims, survivors, witnesses come back again and testify. And we are basically re-traumatizing again and asking our survivors to retell the story again and relive it, which is a consideration for any prosecution. Do you really want to do that? And there are times we do because a defendant will demand his right for a retrial or a trial and we will go forward. Now, let's say oftentimes it is so traumatic that a survivor may choose not to participate again. And then comes in the question of the persuasive effect of using former testimony, which is basically reading a transcript. It is not the same as seeing a person testify and assessing credibility from live testimony. It is not the same as so it's consideration for the prosecution in any prosecution going forward. And if we lose the cooperation of our survivors, the question becomes, does it become a contempt issue? Do we hold them in contempt? Is that really what we want to do to our survivors of sexual assault, physical abuse, and human trafficking? The answer simply is no, we don't want to. So these are all the considerations in having a retrial, just from a putting the pieces back together and going to court. Well, Cynthia, thank you again for this very thoughtful discussion and helping enlighten all of us on the victim's experience and the standards and nuances of jury selection and determining bias. But before we close, is there anything of note that we've missed in our discussion or any final thoughts that you'd like to leave with our listeners? You know, in hearing about jury misconduct, and again, this is not a topic that comes up that often. When you place misconduct against the type of case that's involved. And here we have sexual abuse of children. We in criminal justice and all the justice partners have been talking a lot about delivering trauma-informed care to not only the defendant, but also our survivors. And we also talk about vicarious trauma that is experienced by prosecutors, defense attorneys, law enforcement, victim advocates, But what about the jurors? We have jurors that we ask a lot of. We have them come in and they don't know what case they're gonna serve on. And we ask them to sit through sometimes some cruel and horrible events. And they render a verdict or sometimes they don't. And we thank them for their service and they go back to resume their lives without any thought that what effect listening to the testimony or seeing photographs may have had on them which got me thinking, and I recall that the Boston Marathon bomber case, the federal court judge there made available counseling for the jurors that was federally funded. And so many times we fear unsettling a verdict and and we don't wanna talk to the jurors post-verdict for fear that there may be something wrong. But if there is something wrong, we need to root it out and we need to root it out at an early stage and it needs to be dealt with because ultimately we wanna do the right thing and make sure that the jurors do have a resource available if they go through these traumatic events of being a juror, but also we ensuring that there's a fair and impartial jury, both for our defendant, 
but also our survivors as well. Thank you again, very thoughtful insight. I had not thought about that before. So certainly be interesting to see if that progresses and that more resources are made available like in that case of the Boston Marathon Bomber. Thank you for sharing that. Well, listeners, once again, this was Cynthia Nacal, Professional Responsibility Advisor for the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Jess Pod. <laughs>